Section 9 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 18. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Aidan Fitzgerald. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 18. Edited by Siva Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 9. Anecdotes of Guerrilla Warfare. The strange exploits of these daring partisans, though true to the letter, are perfectly romantic, and the patient endurance, the deep artifice with which their objectives were affected, appear to be almost incredible. Persons whose ages and professions were best calculated to evade suspicion were invariably their chosen agents. The village priest was commonly a confederate of the neighboring guerrilla. The postmaster betrayed the intelligence that reached him in his office. The fairest peasant of Estremadura would tempt the thoughtless soldier with her beauty, and decoy him within the range of the bullet. And even childhood was frequently and successfully employed in leading the unsuspecting victim into some pass or apuscade, where the knife or musket closed his earthly career. In every community, however fierce and lawless, different graduations of good and evil will be discovered, and nothing could be more opposite than the feelings and actions of some of the guerrillas and their leaders. Many of these desperate bands were actuated in every enterprise by a love of bloodshed and spoliation, and their own countrymen suffered as heavily from their rapacity as their enemies from their swords. Others took the field from nobler motives. An enthusiastic attachment to their country and religion aroused them into vengeance against a tyranny which had become insufferable. Every feeling but ardent patriotism was forgotten. Private and dearer ties were snapped asunder. Homes and wives and children were abandoned. Privations that appear almost incredible were patiently endured until treachery delivered them to the executioner, or in some wild attempt they were overpowered by numbers and died resisting to the last. Dreadful as the retaliation was which French cruelty and oppression had provoked, the guerrilla vengeance against domestic treachery was neither less certain or less severe. To collect money or supplies for the invaders, convey in information, conceal their movements, and not betray them when opportunity occurred, was death to the offender. Sometimes the delinquent was brought with considerable difficulty and risk before a neighboring tribunal, and executed with all the formalities of justice. But generally a more summary vengeance was exacted, and the traitor was sacrificed upon the spot. In these cases, neither calling nor age was respected. If found false to his country, the sanctity of his order was no protection to the priest. The daughter of the collector of Almagro, for professing attachment to the usurper, was stabbed to the heart by Urena. And a secret correspondence between the wife of Alcalde of Brueda and the French general in the next command Having been detected by an intercepted dispatch, the wretched woman, by order of Juan Martin Diaz, the Epicanado, 
was dragged by a guerrilla party from her house, her head shaven, her denuded person tarred and feathered and disgracefully exhibited in the public marketplace. And she was then put to death amid the execrations of her tormentors. Nor was there any security for a traitor. Even were his residence in the capital, or almost within the camp of the enemy. One of the favorites of Josef Bonaparte, Don José Rigo, was torn from his home in the suburbs of Madrid, while celebrating his wedding by the Epicinado, and hanged in the square of Cadiz. The usurper himself, on two occasions, narrowly escaped from this desperate partisan. Dining at Almeda, some two leagues distance from the capital, with one of the generals of division, their hilarity was suddenly interrupted by the unwelcome intelligence that the epicinado was at hand, and nothing but a hasty retreat preserved the pseudo-king from the capture. On another occasion, he was surprised upon the Guadalajara road, and so rapid was the guerrilla movement, so determined their pursuit, that before the French could be succored by the garrison of Madrid, forty of the royal escort were sabred between Torrejon and El Molar. A war of extermination raged, and on both sides blood flowed in torrents. One act of cruelty was as promptly answered by another, and a French decree ordering that every Spaniard taken in arms should be executed, appeared to be a signal to the guerrillas to exclude from mercy every enemy who fell into their hands. The French had shown the example. The junta were denounced, their houses burned, their wives and children driven to the woods. If prisoners received quarter in the field, if they fell lame upon the march or the remotest chance of a rescue appeared, they were shot like dogs. Others were butchered in the towns, their bodies left rotting on the highways, and their heads exhibited on poles. That respect which even the most depraved of men usually pay to female honor was shamefully disregarded, and more than one Spaniard, like the postmaster of Medina, was driven to the most desperate courses by the violation of a wife and the murder of child. It would be sickening to describe the horrid scenes which mutual retaliations produced. Several of the Epicinado's followers, who were surprised in the mountains of Guadarrama, were nailed to the trees and left there to expire, slowly by hunger and thirst. To the same trees, before a week collapsed, a similar number of French soldiers were affixed by the guerrillas. Two of the inhabitants of Madrid, who were suspected of communicating with the brigand, as the French termed the armed Spaniards, were tried by court-martial and executed at their own door. The next morning six of the garrison were seen hanging from the walls beside the high road. Some females related to the Pararea, surnamed the Medico, had been abused most scandalously by the escort of a convoy who had seized them in the wood and in return the guerrilla leader drove into an ermita eighty Frenchmen and their officers, set fire to the thatch, and burned them to death, or shot them in their endeavors to leave the blazing chapel. Such were the dreadful enormities a system of retaliations caused. 
These desperate adventures were commanded by men of the most dissimilar professions. All were distinguished by some sobriquet, and these were of the most opposite descriptions. Among the leaders were friars and physicians, cooks and artisans, while some were characterized by deformity, and others named after the form of their waistcoat or hat. Worse epithets described many of the minor chiefs. Truculence and spoliation obtained them titles. And strange as it may appear, the most ferocious band that invested Biscay was commanded by a woman named Martina. So indiscriminating and unrelenting was this female monster in her murder of friends and foes, that Mina was obligated to direct her force against her. She was surprised with the greater portion of her banditti, and the whole were shot upon the spot. Of all the guerrilla leaders, the two Minas were the most remarkable for their daring, their talents, and their successes. The younger, Xavier, had a short career, but nothing could be more chivalrous and romantic than many of the incidences that marked it. His band amounted to a thousand, and with this force he kept Navarre, Biscay, and Aragon in confusion, intercepted convoys, levied contributions, plundered the custom houses, and harassed the enemy incessantly. The villagers were obligated to finish rations for his troops, and the French convoy supplied him with money and ammunition. His escapes were often marvelous. He swam flooded rivers deemed impassable, and climbed precipices he throw untraversed by human foot. Near Estella, he was forced by numbers to take refuge on a lofty rock. The only accessible side he defended till nightfall. When lowering himself and followers by a rope, he brought off his party with scarcely the loss of a man. This was among his last exploits, for when reconnoitering by moonlight in the hope of capturing a valuable convoy, he fell unexpectedly into the hands of an enemy's patrol. Prescribed by the French as a bandit, it was surprising that his life was spared but his loss to the guerrillas was regarded as a great misfortune. While disputing as to the choice of a leader, where so many aspired to a command to which each offered an equal claim, an adventurer worthy to succeed their lost chief was happily discovered in his uncle, the elder Mina. Educated as a husbandman and scarcely able to read or write, the new leader had lived in great retirement until the junta's call to arms induced him to join his nephew's band. He reluctantly succeeded to the general wish to become Xavier's Menina's successor, but when he assumed the command, his firm and daring character was rapidly developed. Echeverria, with a force following, had started as a rival chief, but Mina surprised him, had three of his subordinates shot with their leader and united the remainder of the band with his own, although he nearly escaped from becoming a victim to the treachery of a comrade. The prompt and severe justice with which he visited the offender effectually restrained other adventurers from making any similar attempt. The traitor was a sergeant of his own, who from the bad expression of his face had received among the companions the sobriquet of Malcarado. 
Discontented with the new commander, he determined to betray him to the enemy and consecrated measures with Panetia, whose brigade was near the villages of Robres, to surprise the guerrilla chieftain in his bed. Partial success attended this treacherous attempt, but Mina defended himself desperately with the bar of the door and kept the French at bay till Gestra, his chosen comrade, assisted him to escape. The guerrilla rallied his followers, repulsed the enemy, took Malcarado, and shot him instantly. While the village erred and three alcades implicated in the treacherous design were hanged side by side upon a tree, and their houses razed to the ground. An example of severity like this gave confidence to his own followers and exacted submission from the peasantry. Everywhere, Mina had a faithful spy. Every movement of the enemy was reported, and if a village magistrate received a regulation from a French commandant, it was communicated to the guerrilla chief with due dispatch, or woe to the alcade that neglected it. Nature outformed Mina for the service to which he had devoted himself. His constitution was equal to every privation and fatigue, and his courage was of that prompt and daring character that no circumstance, however sudden and disheartening, could overcome. Careless as to dress or food, he depended for a change of linen on the capture of French baggage, or any accidental supply, and for days he would exist upon a few biscuits, or anything which chanced through in his road. He guarded carefully against surprise, slept with the dagger and pistols in his girdle, and such were his active habits that he rarely took more than two hours of repose. The mountain caverns were the depositories of his ammunition and plunder, and in a mountain fastness he established a hospital for his wounded, to which they were carried in litters across the heights and placed in perfect safety, until their cure could be completed. Gaming and plunder were prohibited, and even love forbidden, lest the gorilla might be too communicative to the object of his affection, and any of his chieftain's secrets should transpire. Of the minor chiefs, many strange and chivalrous adventures were on record. The daring plans, often tried and generally successful, and the hairbreadth escapes of several are almost beyond belief. No means, however, repugnant to the laws of modern warfare were unemployed, while the ingenuity with which intelligence of a hostile movement was transmitted. The artifice with which an enemy was delayed until he could be surrounded or surprised appear incredible. Of individual veracity, a few instances will be sufficient. At the execution of an alcade and his son at Mondragon, the old man boasted that two hundred French had perished by their hands, and the chaleco, Francis Moreno, and a record of his services boasts of his having waited for a cavalry patrol in a ravine, and by the discharge of a huge blunderbuss, loaded nearly to the muzzle, dislocated his own shoulder, and killed or wounded nine of the French. The same chief presented to Villafranca a rich booty of plate and quicksilver, but he added to the gift a parcel of ears cut from the prisoners whom on that occasion he had slaughtered. Profiting by the anarchy that reigned in this afflicted country, wretches under political excuses 
committed murder and devastation on a scale of frightful magnitude. One, pretending to be a functionary of Junta, made La Rada a scene of bloodshed. By night, his victims were dispatched, and to the disgrace of women, his wife was more sanguinary than himself. Castanos at length arrested their blood-stained career, and Pedrazula was hanged and beheaded, and Maria, his infamous confederate, garroted. Castile was overrun by banditti, and one gang, destroyed by a guerrilla chief named Juan Abrif, had accumulated plunder, principally in speech, amounting in value to half a million reales. One of the band, when captured by the French, to save his life discovered the secret and offered to lead a party to the place where the treasure was deposited. His proposal was accepted. An alguazil with an escort of cavalry proceeded to the wood of Villa Vigiosa, and there booty was found worth more than the value affixed to it by the deserter. Returning in unsuspecting confidence, the party were drawn into an ambuscade by the medico, who had been acquainted with the expedition, and of the escort and officials, with the exception of five who managed to escape, every one was butchered without mercy. Such were the Spaniards who made themselves remarkable for patriotism and endurance, surpassing courage and unmitigated cruelty. End of section nine.